0: The emotions, we're given the whole wide range of emotions so that we can use them and experience them and then, you know, change them. But they are just forms of energy. Things are always going to happen to you. There's no time in life that it's not. But you decide how you react to them. I think we need to know that we have more power than we think we do. Right? That you do have personal control and choice even at times when you don't think you do.
1: That is super powerful right like it's not about having control of everything around us but it is about knowing and that like extreme confidence that you control how you react to what is happening around you heyo welcome to the asian detox podcast the podcast where we boldly reclaim asian american prosperity we have relatable conversations about how being Asian-American shows up in our day-to-day lives, how money is deeply embedded in our culture, and how you can choose to define your own version of success in a world that tries to tell us how to be. I'm your host, TJ Way, your hashtag very Asian, non-binary, gluten and dairy-free money habits coach, and I want you to know that you don't have to live in the boxes other people put you in. You can design your abundant life in a way that honors your heritage, while enjoying a life of ease and alignment. And you can do it while making money and building generational wealth. Today, my guest is Dr. Amanda Chan. She is a chiropractor who focuses on neurooptimization. Her tools and strategies aim to help people regulate and optimize their nervous systems. Her motto is, the doctor determines the diagnosis, the patient decides the prognosis. Dr. Amanda believes that patients have more power and control over their healing than they think. They simply need the tools and strategies to support them on their healing journey. Welcome to the show, Dr. Amanda. Thank you so much for having me. Would you share with our audience how they can best follow you? Sure, so you can follow me on my website at
0: optimizemyhealing.com or on Instagram at dr, so Chan.
1: All right, as our icebreaker if your parents were to run into an acquaintance at the grocery store, how would they describe what you do?
0: Uh, my mom would say that I do some kind of healing with the body.
1: <laughs> okay, so I have to ask then, it, you phrased it in a way that indicates to me, like how good is her English?
0: Her English isn't so bad, but she she does speak with you know her accent that she has. So it is not, not
1: everyone recognizes everything that she says. Hmm. So is she the immigrant in the family? Uh, Yeah. So, okay. So when she moved over and then were you born in Canada? So I was born in Canada. My mom is from Malaysia
0: and my grandmother is from China.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's a little bit to follow, huh?
0: Have you been to either Malaysia or China? Uh, Yes. So uh, we routinely go back to Malaysia because a lot of my aunts and uncles are still there. And then I've been to China once.
1: All right, so we have a lot to dive into. We have a lot of uh, shared experiences and beliefs around where we are with like healing and how our Asian-American colleagues and other minorities interact with healing. So um, I want to bring this up because this was kind of new to me in recent years, the concept that minorities don't seek healing until they absolutely need it. So can you expand on that a little bit from your perspective? Sure. So what I've been seeing in
0: practice is that there's a certain subset of people that as soon as something could possibly be wrong, or even before that, they will take they may take a more wellness approach to coming in for care. And then there's another subset of groups where they won't come in unless they have to, right? It's the last resort. They've tried everything that they could think of under the sun. And then they're like, okay, this hurts more than what I can handle. And then they come in. And a lot of minorities tend to fit into that category. And why do you think that is? I think part of it is the cultural aspect of it in terms of you try and do things, a lot of people try and do things on their own, right? And then don't seek help immediately until
1: they literally cannot. It's like Um, that self-sufficiency thing of like, yeah, in order to be like some version of perfect, you got to like do everything in your control first before asking for help. For sure.
0: And there's also a little bit of, you know, shame and guilt surrounding not being able to help yourself, right? We're very independent Mm. people in, you know, in the Asian culture and striving to be the best and do the best. So any element that may feel like you aren't the best in something or that you might need someone's help, um, could trigger the shame and the guilt. So where
1: would you say that the shame and guilt comes from?
0: So in terms of, you know, um, an immigrant culture. I think it comes from generations and generations of it. I know that some people use it as a form of control. So as a child, let's say, you know, it would be, you need to be a good girl or you mm. need to work very hard. And if you don't, like this is what could happen to you.
1: Right. Right.
0: And right. then you start internally feeling bad and you feel guilty if you're not working hard or and doing whatever you can in your power, or you feel guilty if you're not a good girl, or you feel guilty if you make a mistake.
1: I think that's so important to the concept of like, it's a tool that's being used to, to control. And it's so like ingrained in the way I see Asians raising their children, because we have a lot of themes of like, kids are meant to be seen and not heard, that you're supposed to study and be good, that you're supposed to be grateful to your parents. And uh, me growing up in the United States where we're like, our cartoons are all about independence and leaving the home and being your own person. And like, usually the parents aren't even in the cartoons. They're like faceless creatures that are on the side that like, it was such a conflict in my brain of like, Oh, there is like, there are two sets of ideals. And my parents are trying to tell me to feel one way to get myself to behave in a particular way. And like, cognitively knowing that they're like telling me things that are good for me, but the amount of rebellion that like came up for me when people would tell me how to feel was just so overwhelming. And it's interesting that like it comes through the multi-generational thing when we talk about like the immigration and then I don't even know like this is just it's so it's just so much of my life that was like that. Um that I, I can see how when we start translating it to whether or not we look for help in our adult lives, that like it's like that elephant who is chained when they're little and then the chain isn't attached when they're an adult, but they don't know any different. They still hang on to it.
0: Absolutely. And I see it even so my mom helps um to look after my kids when I'm at work. And, you know, whatever my daughter does, my mom would say, mei mei me ni guai, you know, mm. ni, ni guai, you like Good girl, yeah, for, good girl.
1: Yes. Right?
0: And for everything it's good girl. And you know, what I tell her, which is in contrast, is I'll say, This is a bad behavior. You're a good mm. person, but I'll be like, No, no, this is bad behavior. But sometimes if you don't say the behavior part, they take it to mean I'm bad. Yes. Right?
1: Oh, that is so important, right? Because when you say it in one way, and I wanna like for me in my head, the guy. Gwai- context actually means like good behavior. That's what it says in my head. But when you say like good girl, like that's so true that it like gets tied to your identity rather than the behavior. And I would say that like Asian culture doesn't tend to make a distinction between the two. It's all, this is who you are. And like, in order to be that, you, like these are the behaviors that go with. And there there is a decent amount of psychology that says like your identity influences your habits and behaviors, but it's still so important from a self-esteem perspective to say, no, you can be your own person and then choose how you behave based off of what that person is. Right.
0: For sure. And then even if you look at it, translate it to your parents telling you that you're the, the authority figure is growing up being your parents, right? And then the teacher. So you want to do be good because you want your teacher to tell you you're good. Right? then you, you want your boss to tell you you're good. You want your doctor to tell you you're good. So how can you go in to see your doctor and be bad and have something uh, wrong with
1: you? Yes. You won't be good. Yeah. How can you bring problems to the authority figure? So I love that you touched on the boss thing as well of like, we have this thing where we try not to cause problems. Again, back to like being seen and not heard, right? Like. <laughs> Raising problems is the opposite of that. So we're giving people our problems and that's technically what they're there for. Like we don't have leadership hierarchies and we don't have doctors to ignore them and to not ask for their advice. But because of the way we're raised, we are like afraid to do it. There's something intimidating about it. It's like it becomes a burden to go to see the doctor.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, like I said, if you take a look at it from like a boss's perspective, you know, asking for a raise, would you do that if you were not seen as a good person? Mm. You know, if there's a value conflict there,
1: right? Yeah. It's like, it's so mixed in with a lot of other things, right? Because there's also the assumption of like good behavior will get rewarded automatically and things like that. So then, like the meritocracy concept, which I feel like, for me, like, really brings up the feeling of school. Of like, if you do well in school, you'll automatically get a good grade, or you'll automatically be the teacher's pet, or you'll automatically get into good college. But that's not how it works in the work environment, or in in the healthcare self care environment. Because if you never say anything, they don't know that something's wrong. Absolutely. And one of my coaches
0: has called this the Santa Claus effect. And if I'm a good girl, I get a present, right? Santa uh... has been always. Be a good boy, be a good girl, and you get a gift. And in real life, you know, if that were the case, then all the good girls and boys in the world would constantly be getting gifts, and that's not what happens, right?
1: Yes, we we know from like movies that that's not what happens. It's usually the people who are bad that get a lot of like the wealth or the attention, and then we sit here and we resent it silently. Yes, that's a huge piece. So speaking of Santa Claus, did your parents ever like try to make you believe that Santa Claus was a thing? That's interesting because they never tried to make me believe that,
0: but I so wanted to believe that.
1: <laughs> where did where did you first learn about Santa Claus and like where, where was that influence from? Well, I grew up in Canada, so
0: I am in the culture here and so all my friends growing up there were not a lot of asian people in Mm -hmm. like our entire school you know maybe less than five and one was my brother right so
1: (laughs) that doesn't count
0: (laughs) (laughs) so i was very deeply influenced by that and when i first um i was born here but we lived in hong kong and came back to here um English wasn't great, a great language for me at that time. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to fit in, right. But my food smelled, I wore different clothing, like all these things. And I just wanted to be like everybody else.
1: Yes. Like there's such a need when we're young to have that. I mean, even as adults, but like, it's so much more obvious when we're kids of like the need to belong, to not stand out in ways that like get us ostracized. So I could definitely see like, attaching to any of the the traditions and the beliefs of your your peers.
0: For sure. So that Santa Claus came from them and not even my mom who actually told me
1: that Santa wasn't real, right? Oh, did she like you went home talking about it and then she immediately told you it wasn't real? Well I remember this one time. I can't I don't know how old I was
0: and I left out cookies for Santa Claus at night. It was like pretty much the last time I was gonna believe. I literally went to bed and was like, okay, if Santa comes and eats the cookies, then Santa is real. Like, I remember (laughs) thinking this. And then I woke up in the morning and the cookies were gone. And I was like, oh my gosh, Santa exists. And then my mom goes, your cousin was here last night and ate the cookies. And I was like, (laughs) 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 devastated. She didn't mean it. She didn't know that I had, you know, all my hopes of, you know, Santa on this
1: (laughs) oh yeah that we don't tell our parents all of these like these beliefs that we have in our heads and so they don't know that they're walking over them i find it funny now because like i'd say kids in school these days now they have like the elf on the shelf thing and like teachers send home like pamphlets to explain to the parents what the thing is so that they all do it and i'm like like how did this become something so central like and again, back to control, because the Elf in the Shelf is entirely about how to like scare your child into having good behavior leading up to Christmas. <laughs> right? So society is telling
0: us, and especially in the Asian culture, be good, get good grades, be quiet, don't stand out, but get good grades and you will receive what, you know, the success, mm-hmm. the everything. And that's not how it works because if it did, you know, every uh, nanny, every garbage person in the world would be millionaires. And that's just not the way it is.
1: Right. And we wouldn't have parents who are so set on like what career path you're supposed to take, right? Because as long as you were good, it shouldn't matter what career path you're on.
0: Absolutely. And then we also know that people with Asian backgrounds and different ethnic backgrounds tend to gravitate towards certain areas of work because their parents
1: Push them there. Yes, <laughs> guide, push, control. I, I heard this phrase earlier of like being education forward, and I was like, "That's yep, that's it. That's that explains that one." So, for you becoming a chiropractor, was that something that you like? How how did you decide to become a chiropractor and land where you are today?
0: Well, I always wanted to be helping people. I can remember as far back as um, primary school wanting to be a nurse and being you know, in the healthcare field, except what I didn't realize was that medication, traditional medication just doesn't sit very well with me. Like I react to it. I get nauseous, throw up. So I couldn't actually go that route.
1: (laughs) Uh, Yeah. When you can't actually use any of the medicine that you were like wanting to use as tools in your profession, that like definitely moves you in a different direction. So how did you land on chiropractic? Um, in high school, we had the opportunity to do
0: a co-op placement somewhere, and one of them, I did an optometry. You know, be the good Asian kid, go be a doctor. You know, <laughs> do this. And then someone suggested, why don't you do chiropractic? I was like, oh, what was that? And it was completely, you know, was a natural form of healing. That's like, huh.
1: I'll do that. No one knows what it means. Let's go there. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah. And you, you said that when you asked, like, what is that? I was like, you know what? That's a good point. As a kid, we we don't know what that is. And my parents definitely didn't go to a chiropractor. I don't even know like where the closest chiropractor is to my parents' current place. That like that wasn't a thing that we were aware of as an option. Uh and then again, like, it's like the thing that people don't know about. <laughs> So how did you go about, Like, once you learned that this was an option, what were your steps to get you to like, being a chiropractor? Because
0: I did a co-op in a chiropractic office. After that, they offered me a summer job you know, as, when I was a high school student as a receptionist. And so I was able to really see what, get a first eye view of what happened there. Um, so then after that, I had to go to university and then there's a four-year chiropractic degree.
1: Okay. So I think I actually know this answer. I just happened to talk to somebody the other day, but just for everyone who's listening, that's going to four-year undergrad, and then you have four more years on top of that to get chiropractic. Correct, correct. Awesome. It sounds like you'd been on this path for a good while then. So was there at any point, like a point where you questioned whether or not that's what you wanted? I never questioned
0: the healthcare field. But I, there was a time where I was like, maybe I would be a naturopath um, because that also resonated with me. And then I realized that part of the Asian roots is that in Asia, they, you know, in hospitals, they also work with traditional Chinese medicine. Like mm-hmm. it wouldn't be strange for you to get acupuncture in hospitals yes. in China anyway. So I was like, wow, you know, going back to the culture and the heritage, like they actually accept. Mm -hmm. a certain amount of natural and alternative care, even within the hospital setting. So I just felt like it was a good blend and a good mix.
1: Like you you felt like you identified with it.
0: Yeah, for sure.
1: As a first-generation Asian American, I grew up trying to fit into the boxes other people put me in. I considered acting, voice acting, and writing as career options when I was little, but ended up joining Corporate America as an IT project manager to take the Asian parent approved path. The good news is it's not too late for me to follow those more creative goals, but I didn't have the energy to work both my corporate job and follow those passions. And I couldn't shake the cultural directive to be financially stable so that my parents wouldn't have to worry about me. It's so ingrained in me that it's difficult to focus on more creative pursuits or what might be considered passion projects without the financial backing to support myself. That's why I'm such a big fan of building systems and financial foundations that leverage my hashtag very Asian frugal money habits and the more expansive abundance mindset that I strive to embody every day. While sitting at my corporate job feeling like there must be more to life than this, I spend years learning and absorbing information about how to become financially independent, invest in real estate and stocks, and build a business. And now I'm on track to retire by 40. But more than that. I have the freedom to dress how I want, because how I dress now is certainly not considered professional, adopt unconventional pronouns, and work fewer hours to support my physical and mental health. I get to choose what clients I work with, who I spend time with, and what boundaries I need to set in order to keep the toxic expectations and hustle culture at bay. And I want that for you too. If you're ready to make your next big money move and build the financial foundations you need to feel like you can show up as your full self, I have an offer for you. My generational wealth building money mentorship program is three months of direct access to me and my brain to cut through all of the noise and conflicting information on the internet and get you where you need to be financially. Get a wealth building strategy, action plan, curated resources, and emotional support to put you on the path towards your abundant life. The link is in the show notes. So I've heard this a few times about like East Asian medicine, that it's predominated by like actually white people in the industry when you're in in the Americas. So is that your experience in Canada? Yes and no. There are, depending
0: where you are. So certain centers like um, in Canada, Toronto and Vancouver have a lot of Um, Asian East Asian, you know, influence and a lot of Mm -hmm. people live there. So you can definitely get the traditional, you know, Chinese medicine form of it. However, that being said, it's a modality that has been helping a lot of people. So more and more want to study it. Yes. Right. So there are more schools opening up and they don't necessarily discriminate (laughs) between who they (laughs) accept and who they don't.
1: Which, right, like we we live in a world where we're not supposed to discriminate. So there is an aspect of that where like, it's great that we're making this information available to everybody and the, the more people that can adopt it and practice it, the more that we can disseminate the healing that can come with it.
0: Exactly. So that's the way I look at it. Like if someone has an affinity, a desire to learn it, then they're gonna help whoever they need to help, you know, wherever their reach may be.
1: Yeah, that's a great way to look at it. So I do want to touch on the concept because you and I both have family that immigrated over but like kind of hopped countries on the way through. So what was your experience like? When did you like first understand that there was like some complexity to the way that your family immigrated to Canada? I think when I came back to
0: like when I started school was really where the differences showed up. Like I had to go to take an extra class and go to English as a second language to mm. learn English, right? And no one else had to be there. I was one of very like two kids that was. Oh. Now the schools here are like full, right? Um, in Canada, we have a lot of people from many cultures, and so that wouldn't have been a big deal, except it was to me because I was only there with another kid.
1: Mm, yeah, it's small group for sure. So you mentioned your brother. Is your brother older or younger? I have a younger brother. So my brother's older. So I'm curious for you and your family, like what what is that dynamic? How close are you with your brother? And like, do you notice differences in the way your family treats you versus him? (laughs) Good question.
0: (laughs) My mom has always said she treats us equally. So I was raised by just my mom. She says we're always treated equally. And my adult brain (laughs) has come to understand that having two children of my own that every child has a different need, right? So you Mm -hmm. cannot possibly treat them the same because, you know, let's say one of my kids likes soccer and the other one likes to swim, then they're not all going to both take the same lessons. So I can't treat them equally, right? Right. And so whoever, you know, if I was good at math and my brother was good at English, then I would need more help in different areas. That being said, (laughs) you could see that there are even layered on top of it, cultural differences in the ways that Asian people tend to treat um, a boy versus a girl.
1: Mm. So could you give a couple examples in your life? Yeah, let's see. Although my mom does help me a lot, she may do like, she still would do
0: the laundry for him and still cook for him and still do things for him now.
1: And he's a full grown Um, adult now.
0: Yes, and he's a full grown adult. With With a like real job? (laughs) with someone who's supposed to be able to sufficiently take good care Mm. of himself. He's just fine. Um, But there is some sort of element that they need. And even in treating my son and my daughter, it's a little bit differently. My daughter is younger and she's Mm. now more independent because my mom might help feed my older one, but she's just there, you know, doing it on her own. Mm. That's interesting.
1: Like, I feel like... I I can relate to being the younger (laughs) daughter that's like more self-sufficient because like there's a reality there that you can really only like give so much attention at any given point in time that if so in my family, my brother didn't do so well in school. So my parents would spend more time trying to help him there or encourage him. Or like, I remember I have a memory of like them spending the weekend in his room, cleaning his room with him. (laughs) (laughs) And my response to that was like, oh, if that is like the ideal behavior, let me just go do it on my own in the hopes that I would get attention. And I don't remember if I specifically got attention for that at that point in time. But I do know that like the pattern that showed up for me afterwards was that I didn't necessarily get as much attention as I thought I would. So I didn't put in as much effort later.
0: (laughs) (laughs) For sure. It's subtle. But there are differences.
1: Yeah. And the thing is, we have this concept of fair, but it's really hard for us, un- unless we, we spend a lot of time talking about each little thing, to realize how much we just have like programmed into us uh, our subconscious behaviors that we don't realize that might look like favoritism one way or the other, or because it's of a gender role that's like so programmed into us. And even from a, a genetic standpoint, that we identify with the gender, like the gender of the parent that we are born as, we recognize the difference and we try to emulate that. It's almost impossible to talk about being absolutely fair, at least not with the way that our society works today. And I've heard of stories of people like trying to raise their children completely gender neutral. But then as soon as you send them off to school, then they're bombarded with all of these other things that their peers send them that like, it's, it's a losing battle you're right. And it's a conversation
0: I have like with my daughter, I am not into like a lot of princess stuff and we don't have that, but she loves to wear dresses, which is fine dresses, but pink tutu and like, you know, all of it. She wants unicorn, everything, you wow. know, like she hops around the house in a unicorn and it didn't come for me. My husband
1: doesn't walk around like a unicorn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You are not modeling this behavior somewhere. She picked so, this up. Uh, Oh, I will say, I'm sure that as a parent, like dresses are easier because they're the one outfit you just pull over the head and you're like, (laughs) okay, you're done, right? (laughs) Yes,
0: it is from putting it over the head kind of thing. Absolutely. But what I do love about her is she likes to do what would might be boy things in her princess dress. So Mm. she was hammering something. And so I was like, okay, let's get ready. And she's like, well, I want to do it in my princess dress. So she walks that's out amazing. with her hammer and she's in her princess dress and she's using a hammer.
1: Oh, that's awesome. I'm I'm so glad that like you you don't stop her clearly that she's just doing that. Cause I feel like that was actually an anxiety that I had growing up is that my mom would put me in not only dresses, but like pantyhose. And then I would also want to run around and do things. And then I would skin my knee and I would like put a hole in the pantyhose or my grandmother would get us ice cream or some kind of like frozen dairy dessert every time we visited her i was such a klutz as a kid i always dripped some on me but i'm in a dress so then my mom's trying to like wash the stain out of my dress while we're standing in the bathroom and i'm just in like my underwear as a kid <laughs> like that set like a whole different message to me of like this is a pain to be in a dress and then like to have things that you have to fix because you broke them because you were acting more like what we would have called a tomboy at the time, right? But like really just more like playing a little harder than a dress is meant for. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. No, so I absolutely love that you you let her choose how she's going to show up in the world when you, when you had your kids, when you first like were thinking about what kind of parent you would want to be, what thoughts went through your head?
0: My main thing is I want them to be able to have the tools to be resilient. Mm. So I'll give you an example. During the summer, my son started summer camp for the first time and we enrolled him with two of his best friends so that he would enjoy camp and actually go. Yes. Um, and on the first day, he was the first one there. So I left him and I said, hey, you are you know, bud, your friends are coming. He's like, okay, bye, mom. And then I get, you know, 20 minutes later, I get a call from both his friends' parents. And they're like, oh, no, he's not in our class. Like, he's your kid's in another class. Oh. He's all by himself. And they're like, quickly, call and change him. You know, get him into our class. I was like, no. <laughs> oh, I was nice. Like, he's going to go through the day. And at the end of the day, we're going to have a chat and see how he did. And, you know, he has the opportunity to make new friends, right? To try and do that. Mm -hmm. And if, okay, let's say he had a terrible time and he never wants to go back to camp. Sure, we're going to have a discussion of maybe moving him. But if he had a fine day, I'm not going to change him.
1: That's awesome. I'm so glad that you like, not only because somebody's telling you like what to do about it, right? That you were able to hold a boundary there and say, no, let's see how he handles it right? Like that's that's a big part of growing up is experimenting. And then the other thought that went through my head, right, is like, you're not always going to be able to call and get him switched, right? You're not always going to get to like, as much as we definitely have like a generation of helicopter parents that I know my parents were like somewhere in that range. They weren't like terrible, but they were there in like the controlling influence place that at some point you can't do that. Like you, it's possible in like the younger years of like elementary school that you can influence that. I know my elementary school was like that you could actually like request a particular teacher for your kid. But once you get into like middle school, high school, where they have multiple classes, it's impossible. So I love that you were able to intentionally say, no, he's gonna have to deal with this and we'll see how it goes. So then I'm curious, how did he handle it? Oh, he's just fine.
0: Kids are adaptable, right? They are. And so I said, "How was camp?" He said, "Fine." I was like, you make new friends?" Yeah. Okay, great. Then he, he's like, all he said was, "Oh, my friends didn't
1: come to school today, like to camp today." I'm like,
0: mm, "Okay." Oh,
1: <laughs> it didn't even occur to him that they, that you were they were meant to be together, which was actually yeah. like perfect too, right? Like there was no expectation there. No, he just thought they didn't come today. You know, some days people go to school
0: and some days they don't, so they didn't come.
1: Wow. That's perfect. I like the parents were so anxious, but he's like, no, nope, that's just the way it is right now.
0: Yeah. Well, they were, his friend's parents were like, why wouldn't you change him? I'm like, cause he got to he has to build, you know, resiliency. And they were like, but
1: he can build it later. He's so young. Oh, that's, that's an interesting point, right? Like a philosophy on when you can pick up like, a like a, such a core life skill. Right. I I, I'm I'm thinking about it I'm like I can kind of see that I'm, I'm not sure one way or the other like what's like the correct way to do it right but you had an opportunity there and you decided to just stick with the way things were well I took it to mean that he was there for a reason
0: and while he was there he was gonna learn something and that's it
1: and if he learned he grew that phrase, he was there for a reason. I'm wondering like, is that something that's foreign to to the Asian culture? The concept of just letting it be the way it is. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like there's so much about the control thing of like, yes. we get to influence who our kids become. Like we tell them wh- what they're supposed to learn and what career they're supposed to follow. That like we, ha- there's a lot more sense of like, you control this. And I almost want to say like, that's where a lot of that guilt and shame comes from is this concept of like the inner locus of control versus you're you're calling in the concept of like, you know, there's some things that the universe just says, here's the way it's going to be. And there's a reason.
0: Yeah. And you're right. It's mainly that, you know, the outside world, you don't have a lot of control over, but you do control your inside world and how you react. And that's one thing that is within your power. So I want my son to know, and my daughter, to, of course, to know that although things are always going to happen to you, there's no time in life that it's not, mm-hmm. but you decide how you react to them. And that's in your choice. That's your choice.
1: Yeah. I love like imbuing that perspective into your children's lives because I feel like I, I view the way I was raised as more of like, if there's something happening, then you interpret it in the most negative way first because there's like a reactive protective instinct there. And then you can do something about it because now you know what the problem is. But like being able to say, no, this is fine. This is not necessarily a bad thing. And rolling with it is, I know it's definitely foreign to my mom. Like this was something that I had a conversation with her about of this concept of like, you know, you could say things in a positive way instead of telling me (laughs) that something's like complaining about it instead. I think in that
0: generation, um, and and so much of ours too, is complaining is a way. We might call it gossiping; they call it telling the whole family. Other <laughs> just talking yeah, about yeah, the family. Yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> but it's a way of connection. That's how they mm-hmm. stay connected, right? Yes. So, what would the connection be like if they didn't talk about their kids? What would it be like if they didn't talk about what was going on with other people? Like you're a family member?
1: That is such a good point, right? Like if you didn't have something to complain about, what are you going to talk about? Which I like, I really feel is like a vacuum in my head of like, okay, if I took the dinner table rules and changed it so that we're not allowed to complain about anything, would we have something to say? That's kind of terrifying. (laughs) (laughs) It is, but like, that's how they stay in connection
0: with us and with other people and their friends, you know, is through talking about.
1: I, I needed somebody to tell me that that was their experience too because <laughs> I always had this feeling that of like watching my mom like complain about work to my dad or something that happened and she would like weave this like complex narrative about it, give us all the correct context and make it so that like at the end of the story, you would like take her side and I always viewed it as like an art form or how you were supposed to be <laughs> connected to people by putting the story together in a way that not only can your audience understand, but that they would sympathize with you at the end. To me, that was like just what was expected of, I, I would say it might've been a gendered thing because it was always my mom telling stories. My dad didn't have many stories to tell. Like It, it was more of like that traditional, like you don't talk about work at home kind of behavior. Um, plus my mom clearly like wanted to talk. <laughs> so I like considered that like the ideal way to tell a story. And until this conversation, I don't feel like I ever talked to somebody else who was like, yes, that's because it's like, even if it's like a negative, toxic way to tell it, it's how they're connecting with each other.
0: Yeah. It's how your mom probably learned from your grandmother how to connect.
1: That is so foreign to me because I I don't actually know my mom's side's grandmother. Like she lived in Taiwan while I was growing up and then passed away when I was 12. So I have no idea what what my mom's household growing up was like, but she must have learned it from somewhere in order to be so good at it. <laughs> I don't mean that she was like always complaining or anything, but like No, no. There was a way her stories were just like I considered it a certain level of art form.
0: Yeah, and then you probably learned from your mom how to tell certain stories in that way too,
1: if you choose to. Yes. I would say if anybody, uh, I'll occasionally when I do my social media posts, especially on Facebook, because you can get like a really blog length post there, people will occasionally be like, you're such a good writer. And I'm like, this is just me typing out the way I would have said it out loud. <laughs> and, and therefore the <laughs> podcast, right? Then the, the podcast form makes it a little bit easier to to really add the the tones that I want to it as well. But like, to me, that's where that comes from. Even though I had a lot of practice in other ways of like, creative writing perspective that this is like one of the things that got passed down to me.
0: And, you know, they're nagging and the food, that's also how they stay in connection. You know, yes. they might not ask you how your day was, but they're, have you eaten yet? Yes. Right? Like, are you
1: hungry? <laughs> the food thing <laughs> is so big. And like, I know from, I think I must have learned this in Chinese school, of like the concept of there. there was a time where like food was scarce. And so people are always asking, have you eaten yet is the phrase, right? Or what did you eat and checking in to make sure that you're, you're full. And like, that is, I was explaining to somebody, we don't say I love you in my family. And I think most Asian families don't, but they ask about whether or not you've eaten. And that's one of the ways they say, I love you. You're absolutely right. Like, how they show
0: their love is by how much food, you know, and how much food you eat at their dinner table. Yes. And even, like, even till today, if I'm eating with, let's say, in Malaysia with my aunts and I finish, like, you know, the chopsticks beside me, whoever's beside me will have more food on my plate. And I'm like, huh? Yes. They, they, even get they there? will <laughs> reach
1: over with their chopsticks and grab something they think you should be eating and put it on your plate. And this was always interesting to me because as a kid, my brother and I were super picky eaters. So we didn't eat a lot of meat and there were like a handful of vegetables that we would like to eat. And then it was basically like eggs and rice was what we were willing to eat. (laughs) Um, And my mom would always say, we're trying to give you the good stuff. Why do you refuse the good stuff? (laughs) And, you know, as an adult, now I completely understand, especially with like inflation now, like meat prices and egg prices are going up and all those things. Like, yeah, that was the good stuff. But as a kid, I had no concept.
0: No, and it's how they show their love, right? It's how they connect it. Because you're right, you don't say I love you, right? In Asian families, it's very, unless you've you know been here and then you make a practice of yes, it. Yes,
1: unless you grew up here or were here for long enough that like the the Western culture has come in, right? Like, and that's the thing is when I'm in relationships now, I will say I love you all the time to my partner, but I still can't quite say it to my parents. <laughs> I
0: understand. My husband is uh, Canadian, like white Canadian, Mm. Caucasian. And, you know, he's like, why? Like his parents say every time they come over, it's like my in-laws are a hug and a kiss and, you know, everything. And like, he goes to like, hug my mom. And she's like, what is happening?
1: (laughs) (laughs) My mom loves hugs. My dad will hug me, but is not like super eager to offer one. Like It's usually like, hello, goodbye kind of hugs. And then my brother and I are the most awkward because we we just don't even know what to do with each other.
0: (laughs) Well, it was funny because when I, he came with us to Malaysia the last time, like he'd go and hug my family members who, you know, and they're like, Oh my gosh. (laughs)
1: What is this? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. There, there's definitely like a stiffness reaction to it. So I'm curious in Malaysia because I'm not very familiar with the culture, but like, how do they greet people?
0: You know, Malaysia is like a melting pot of cultures. They have the Malay people, they have the Chinese people, and Indian people are like their main three, like the majority. And so the Asians all come from, you know, China, Hong Kong, Taiwan, whatever. And they really much just keep the culture. Um, Mm. So, you know, you would normally, you greet people by bringing food to their house. (laughs) Ah,
1: yes. And then you're like, thank you, food, awesome. And then (laughs) you put it out. Yeah, I feel like I picked up a lot of unspoken like hosting culture of like when you have a guest in the house, you have to make sure that you offer them something to drink and constantly ask them if they want a snack and like you're constantly trying to pull things out to see if like they'll eat it. And I remember watching my mom do this and I don't, like we didn't host much, but somehow that was a thing where like, if somebody was in my house that didn't live there, I'm constantly looking out to do things like that or like to tidy up while before they see it. So did you, have you ever asked your mom about her experience immigrating to Canada?
0: Parts of it. Like I know she had to work really hard. And so everything that's passed down to you, there's good points. And then there's um, less good points about it, right? There's the upside and the downside. So I did get that aspect of the culture, which it was like, you gotta work hard. You gotta work hard.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of like the immigrant culture in general is this concept of like, I don't know necessarily that like because we're outsiders that we have to work hard, but there's it's like gets mixed in with also the concept of the American dream where you're supposed to like bootstrap your way up and somehow it all combines into this feeling of like you have to earn your place or somehow make it so that they can't kick you out. Even though I don't think anybody ever said anything like that in front of me, somehow that like it just shows up in my brain that like there is a reason that we work this hard and we're not just like everybody else in the way we show up in the world. Yeah. And
0: that's really interesting that you say that because I do see how, let's say even here, the immigrant families won't upset anybody around. Like, so mm. what I mean by that is like here we have bylaws. So if you're, you know, parked the wrong way, you're doing something <laughs> or your dog's barking or whatever, you can call bylaw. Um, mm. And, I would never do that, right? Like it's oh. just in terms of like in, I would never call and tattletale on oh, someone. Oh, interesting. And my husband's like, well, that's what they're there for, right? Like if something's happening and you need to tell them about it so that they're aware of it, right? Like, you know, you can't have the neighbor's dog biting another kid, right? Like they have to know these things. And I'm like, oh, I wouldn't tattletale on them. <laughs> and I find a lot of immigrants also they don't want to get in trouble, right? Mm. Because they don't know the laws here. They don't know the rules. So
1: let's just not say anything. Oh, that's true, right? There's an aspect of like not knowing enough to be able to make an informed decision about like what to execute on, right? Like if you don't know the complexities, you could call somebody out on something that you think is the rule. And it might be actually an embarrassing story later that like you were mistaken on whatever the rule was. Or they come out and then they also find something else that you've done wrong. And suddenly you've been like the, the person that was pointing fingers and you do have like the whole like the, the four or five fingers pointing back at you kind of thing. So that's fascinating to me because the, the other aspect of like your husband's trust in the system of like, that's what it's here for. And for some people, yes, that's exactly what it's there for. And more in like the American experience is like, that's what it's there for for white people. Like especially adult white males, like the rules aren't actually designed right that they can be enforced inequitably in a way that on paper it says one thing and then reality it's implemented differently, and so there's a lot of caution there as well.
0: Absolutely, and also as you were saying, in the Asian culture, it's about saving face, right? Like, mm. what if someone found out oh, I made a mistake? Yes, heaven,
1: you know, <laughs> forbid right. I make a mistake. Like, why would you embarrass? somebody else because they'll find a way to embarrass you back or like you you could say it wrong or whatever it is. And that is such a big thing about this concept of saving face, which I don't think like, I don't think I heard the English version of that phrase until much later. But like in Chinese, my mom would describe it like I translate it literally in my kid brain as Throwing face, like throwing pieces of your face away is how I understood <laughs> it. And like that was such a foreign concept as a kid. So I wonder if you have any memories of like when you first learned that that was like that embarrassment was something to be avoided.
0: Yeah. So it's always been like, don't get angry. You can't show other people that you're angry because then they would see that they won. Right. Oh. Or that was where it came from. But also like, if you got angry, you lost control. And so it, it really much comes down to control. And I understand that because like in China, there's a lot of people, right? It's a very yes. populous. So you have to have some sort of measure of control or somebody that everybody listens to. Right. Right. So, like some social norms. Yeah, social norms. And so if you ingrain it into children ever since they're young, that they need to follow whoever the authority is, the government, the whatever, then it's easier to control the population versus like, you know, here where they may have, yes, you can be individual, you can be a free thinker, you can, you know, you can stand against, you can protest,
1: right? <laughs> like, yes, right, that we have rights to do those things, which I still think yeah. is, like, we have those rights, but then we do still have a need to, to do the control thing because here we have teachers who have like 35 kids in the classroom with just themselves so that they still need to be able to imbue some kind of control in them. And I always find it absolutely funny because when I went to college, I worked with fifth graders. So I'd do like the silent wolf or coyote thing or the clapping pattern or flashing the lights on and off to get the kids' attentions. And if you've never tried it on a full grown adult, it still works. They still react (laughs) to it. Um, they may not stop in the middle of their sentence when they're chatting with somebody, but they will finish their thought and then turn to you and look. And it is the strangest thing to realize that like, we were all somehow programmed in a way growing up that it still works as adults, despite being told that we can also still like break the rules and be independent and like have free thinking and all of these other things. For sure. I can see, I can definitely see how that I would turn for that too. (laughs) So you touched on the concept of like kind of like suppressing emotions and especially the anger or things that would embarrass you. But I know that we've talked previously about how important our emotions are to us and what it means to us to be able to heal, especially in the the non, I don't know what to call like the, I guess the mainstream medicine. (laughs) So I'd love to touch on like your thoughts of like the role of emotion in healing. Oh, huge. Because a lot of people see things as
0: just a physical, like, let's say I'm in Canada. So someone comes in with low back pain, because they were shoveling, right? Physically, sure, I want to know how much snow you were picking up, how long you were doing it, what your are but I also want to know what were you thinking and feeling in the process, mm. right? Because what if you were saying, I hate my job, I hate my job, <laughs> I hate my job, right? And then your back went out. Or what if you were saying like, how come I'm the only one out here shoveling the snow? How come no one else is here helping me? Like if you layer them and then your back goes out, we don't know which one it was.
1: Right. Because you've, you've suddenly you're carrying all the stress with you. Your posture is different. Your movements are stiffer. And I've been there where I was angry and then I pulled a muscle. (laughs) So I I love that, that your example there that like shoveling snow, I've never had to do it, but I, I can relate to the concept of like being annoyed that you have to and how that that can lead to like compounding, right like you maybe you already had like a week back or something, but adding those on top of each other is such a big deal to from a preventative perspective
0: absolutely. and like let's layer in the piece of Asian culture when you're told, okay, you can't be angry. And you're like, but I'm so mad, right? Like, (laughs) even if it's an injustice thing, right? Right. Like, okay, my mom didn't treat me the same way as my brother. I'm so upset. Like, it's not fair, right? But you're not allowed to show it. And you're like, so it has to go somewhere and it stays in your
1: body. Oh, wow. That is such a good point, right? Like, I remember being told, like, I threw a tantrum when I was really young. And I absolutely remember being told, that throwing a tantrum was not okay. So I would stop the physical behavior that went with the the release of my anger and frustration. But I also remember thinking, what the hell am I supposed to do with this energy then? Where is this supposed to go? And like not having an answer clearly. Uh, So do you have an answer for that when you're you're taught to like hang on to all that? What should you be doing with that energy? Letting it go. (laughs) No, but there are avenues in which it's it's
0: good to let it go, right? Like anger, we're taught that anger is a bad emotion, but anger can be a useful emotion, right? Let's say in you know the extreme case of like domestic abuse and finally someone says, enough of this, right? It takes mm. anger. They go, enough of this. I'm never gonna let this happen again. That's a good use of that emotion, yes. right? And that energy can be transformed and changed into, to give you power. Right, it can become a protective energy. Yeah. So there's nothing wrong. Like the emotions were given the whole wide range of emotions so that we can use them and experience them and then, you know, change them. But they are just forms of energy.
1: Oh, that is so good. Emotion is just a form of energy. I I love that. Paired with the concept, right? We're back to the whole, like, you control how you react to the things that happen, that like the universe hands you certain circumstances. And the emotions are just another tool that you have to... Not necessarily just with like from a reaction standpoint, but like a way to interpret what the circumstances are. Because I always feel like my emotions know sooner than my conscious brain does. Like I consider my emotions my subconscious of they tell me sooner than I can figure out like a a logical reason for how I feel or whether or not a circumstance is good or bad. And then what you do with that energy that you have is up to you because just because you feel a certain way doesn't mean you have to behave a certain way.
0: Right. Yes. You're in control of reactions, right? Like, if somebody cuts you off in traffic, you don't have to chase after them with the bat. <laughs> <You know?
1: laughs> right? oh, no. like that's improper
0: use of anger. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: well, not a good use of your time either because they probably didn't even realize what they did.
0: <laughs> no, but like even in traditional Chinese medicine, like having a lot of anger goes to your liver, having a lot of fear goes to like your kidneys, sorrow goes to your lungs. And so there's like an imbalance of chi in mm. the traditional Chinese medicine sense. And then built up over time, like, the cheese stagnates and then it could lead to certain illnesses or certain diseases. Oh wow.
1: I love that like explanation because it you can kind of use it in two ways of like once something's already gone wrong, then you can talk about like okay, but what else has been happening in your life? And you're back to asking about how people feel, which seems really contradictory actually in the Asian culture that like we don't talk about mental health, we don't talk about how we feel, but then in the medicine it sounds like that's actually like where they start pulling that out when we're back to the traditional forms of medicine. Yeah. It's always been like emotions, your
0: thoughts, and your body has always been linked together in the most traditional forms. But uh, we've just moved away from it.
1: That that really makes me wonder like what would have happened if we hadn't moved so far away from traditional East Asian medicine and like we're still tied to it, right? Like other parts of our culture isn't designed to express our emotions, but if our medicine was meant to be the way that we assess and have an outlet and talk about the long-term effects of how we feel or think that, is it like the decoupling of that has actually made it really hard for us to exist in the part of the culture that doesn't talk about it?
0: And, you know, you do see a lot of mental health in the Asian culture, but you don't see it until somebody does something drastic.
1: Yes. Right. When when we go to the the space of like, it's too late or like, it's the the last resort or whatever it is of like, it's so bad because back to like the self-sufficiency thing, but it's fascinating to me because I think. I'm imagining more like if we kept up with like doing Tai Chi, we talked about Chi a lot more, right? Yes. Those types of things, those are maintenance behaviors that... Right. I mean, there's a reason that there's like parks full of like retired Asian people doing yes. Tai Chi. Oh my gosh, here too. <laughs> uh, there is like, it's more than just like a slow motion Kung Fu style. It There's a lot of like stabilizing muscles that go into it. There's a lot of like calming aspects that it just feels like it, it's almost like we lost something that we need to bring this kind of stuff back into like the younger generation to have, to like really benefit from the, the whole suite of like the knowledge that was available to us in our homelands.
0: Absolutely. And right. Like Tai Chi, the movement of Chi, the movement of the stagnant energy in your body that you were not able to express at a certain time. Right. That's yes. just like the full circle of, um, of healing.
1: That's absolutely beautiful. I'm going to have to find a place to do Tai Chi now because (laughs) I've experienced it once or twice in like primer lessons and it is very powerful, but I think I just, you know, it takes some intentionality to go find a place when you're not, when you can't just go to the park and join a large group. That is my homework. Before we wrap up, is there anything else that you feel you want to share with the audience? Yeah, I think we need to know that we have more power than we think
0: we do, right? That you do have personal control and choice, even at times when you don't think you do. That's really what most of the greats always knew. Mm. Like the Buddhas, you know, they could control their internal environment. Yes. And with that, they can walk peacefully no matter what circumstances were happening around them.
1: That is super powerful, right? Like it's not about having control of everything around us, but it is about knowing and that like extreme confidence that you control how you react to what is happening around you. And like to
0: layer that piece is if you don't have control over your internal environment, you look externally for the control.
1: Oh, yes. We may think otherwise, right? Like we like to lie to ourselves but it it does start from within and the way we handle ourselves, and we're sold that like there's an external solution to everything because that's just how capitalism and marketing works, but it is something to take time to to think about like how you react to things and you know it it's a muscle that we all have to practice that when you're new to it, it's more of like reassessing how you reacted to something and asking yourself like. Would I still do that again if I like thought about it again? I think that we all do things like that. Um, but it's just it definitely gives me a lot to think about. So before we part, I know you're also doing some online classes or like resources for people. Will you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. So I, I have my physical practice in Canada, but that, you know, not
0: everyone is gonna be coming here. So I developed some online courses and tools so that people can still learn. From wherever they are in the world. And so we teach the mindfulness from the aspect, like from the physical, the emotional, the mental, the spiritual. And then we do stuff like yoga and meditation and journaling and just all the self care components that you would need.
1: Yes, that's awesome. We're back to the whole like sharing the knowledge beyond what would have been possible when we didn't have the internet or the the ability to disseminate information. So thank you so much for joining us. We will have all of Dr. Amanda's. Links in the show notes if you want to follow more and get those resources from her. I know that something in this episode left you feeling, oh my God, that's so me. And I want to hear about it. Leave a review on iTunes or tag me on social media and share your relatable story with us so that we can normalize our experiences as Asian Americans and help more people feel safe to step outside of the box. I can't wait to hear about it. You can find me on Instagram at tj.wey. And don't forget to design your abundant life.